Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Other People's Things. I am really excited. This week has been so fun. We recently got an inflatable kiddie pool, and I've been putting my daughter in that and sitting outside pretty much every day. And I think that there's something about those summer feelings that just gets me into this delicious kind of laziness where I don't want to do anything except just enjoy the time with my family and read novels and sit outside in the sun and just enjoy life. So I've been doing that. And, you know, I've also been thinking about the podcast and my next move and haven't forgotten about it. But things have just been a little slower and it's kind of nice really to get a little bit of a break. I have been reading an Edith Wharton novel and it's called The House of Mirth and I really like her work because it is a critique, an entertaining critique on society and the things that wealthy people do. And a lot of times there's a lot of ridiculousness within it and the lengths that people will go to secure status and money and wealth and acceptance and just to be a part of a materialistic society. She highlights that so well and I feel like it has so many parallels with what I talk about that I just had to bring it up. And and it makes me realize that our society has not changed and I don't think it ever will unless there is a major uprooting of values and I'm not foreseeing that's going to happen in our country <clears throat> but it's just interesting how people really don't change that much at their core like our outfits change fashion changes style changes trends change but deep down inside it's really difficult to change the root of society and how we relate to each other. And that brings me into, you know, what I'm going to be talking about today, which is denim dealers and the gentrification of basically the fashion of the working poor, which to the working poor, it's not really called fashion to them. That's utilitarian necessity. And we're going to be going into that in just a moment. And speaking of laziness in summer, I just kind of wanted to talk about what I'm wearing and how I'm not doing my hair just because it's a little different this week. I have been a bit lazy and I go through these periods and I just want to keep it real with everybody because I'm always looking kind of polished in my social media and on the podcast and my presentation of myself to the outside world, but I really go through waves and ups and downs and periods where I just kind of want to have as little maintenance to my look as possible. And right now it's one of them. So, you know, I didn't do my hair today and I just kind of blow dried it and I'm kind of happy with how shiny it looks, <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, it's not my usual roller set and I'm trying to 
become comfortable with how my hair looks when I don't do it like that because it's a lot of work and I don't always feel like it. And I don't think that it's necessary all the time. And there are some women who are able to do a vintage look every single moment. And because of some issues that I have, I like health issues with like my scalp in general, I'm not able to like keep that hairstyle up all week without having to like wash it regularly. And, um, I'm trying to find ways to work around that so I can still feel good about how I look and try out a few different styles. I've never been the kind of person to just be stuck to one look, one way of doing things. Always. I'm always evolving and changing and trying out different things, even though at my core, I will always love old things and history and a variety of styles. But um, I think that it can sometimes be healthy to try out different things or combine things or just uh, take some things from each era and appreciate some modern fashion sometimes. I mean, I certainly do that and I think that's okay. And there's this pressure in the vintage community um, to stick to just one aesthetic. And I think we're selling ourselves short if we do that because we feel that we have to in order to be authentic or to fit in. If that's just what you prefer to do, I mean, do what you want. That's fine. But I have personally felt like this need to always be wearing vintage if I'm going to authentically fit in to the community. And I've always felt like at home with the idea that we each have to have like one personal style that we all stick to. And if we don't do it, then somehow we're a fraud, which is dumb. But I don't know why. It's just like this programmed thought in my mind that's always been there. And I'm always thinking about like, well, if I don't keep up wearing my vintage inspired outfits every day, then it's like, I don't really care about it or I don't, <laughs> I don't even know it sounds so silly coming out whenever I speak about it, but that's just what goes through my head sometimes. And I think it's wrong overall. And I just want anyone who's listening who has felt a little bit of pressure to, you know, always be looking a certain way or dressing a certain way or doing your hair a certain way that it doesn't make you any less of a fan of vintage or any less uh, committed if you decide that sometimes you just want to appreciate some other things about different eras or you want to combine them or you just want to take a break sometimes and go what I like to call incognito and find some nicely well-made uh, modern clothes and just, you know, take a little break for a while. I find myself needing to do that kind of frequently and, you know, that's okay. And I just wanted to say that my shirt I'm wearing today is actually a, I think a late forties or early fifties shirt that I found in Arizona. And I like it so much because it goes well with modern clothing and I'm wearing a pair of jeans with it kind of in uh, tune with my episode for today. I wanted to get into character and I just love this shirt because like I said, you can wear it with pretty much anything and it's never going to go out of style and the colors are great. And there's so much stuff like this that I think is just begging to be combined with some more modern clothes. And I just like to play with it. So, you know, I just want to encourage everyone to play around with your style and 
don't feel too restricted if you don't always want to and listen to that. And you might find a part of your personal style or creativity unlocked as a result. It's kind of a great idea. I'd love to see what you all come up with. So to get into today's episode, finally, after my little talk and catch up, I want to talk about this website that I came across called The Denim Hunters. And I don't follow it regularly, but I did find an article there that was of extreme interest and importance to the things I talk about with the parallels of vintage fashion and status and class and wealth and capitalism and how we think about the poor, how we think about um, acquiring vintage. And I really need to touch on how the gentrification of poor or working class people's clothing has exploded. And it's not a new thing. This was happening in the 90s and the 80s, but it's relatively new to cherish and want to dress like the poorest of the poor. And you can see it everywhere. This isn't just a vintage issue. It's an issue that you see everywhere. And this guy, his name is Britt Eaton. This article was wrote written about him. He has sold to major fashion houses. Ralph Lauren was one of them that he mentioned specifically in this article that I'm going to link in the description so you can check it out yourself along with the videos. This guy sells stuff to museums. He sells stuff to big brands like Levi's and Dickies. He sells things to movie companies and fashion designers who are looking for inspiration. And the key thing is that they are taking inspiration from these old tattered garments that people have basically tossed aside. And people back then, I'm talking about 1900 and previous, and even a little bit after, of course, but this is what he primarily collects and deals in these days is pre-1900. These people were storing these clothes in the insulation of their walls, um, in their scarecrows, the dress mannequin, like all sorts of things. And that's where he's getting them. People aren't throwing them away exactly. Uh, he is going and searching through people's homes, through mines, abandoned places, sometimes illegally, I'm guessing, and obtaining things that he is selling for a very large turnover. And, you know, he is not doing this as like a charity type of thing for museums or for the sake of history, necessarily. He is charging a lot, a lot of money for what he uncovers and finds. And, you know, it seems to be like a thrill thing for him. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit about this guy. He spends 10 days monthly on the road looking for used denim in forgotten ghost towns, um, abandoned homes, old, old houses, abandoned mines, um, sometimes even living people's houses. A lot of the times he'll go into small, tiny towns. And if you've ever driven through like Arizona, small towns, you'll know that these places are usually kind of poor. There's a lot of poverty, sometimes like drug problems. 
there's lots of old farms and farmhouses and a lot of times it's just like one old person living there whose family has lived there for generations and then that's it so these are people without a lot of money without a lot of outside world knowledge and he is finding and sourcing his products there he primarily sells and he does a lot of like trade shows from what I can see. Um, he does like vintage fairs and markets. He has used his work to fill in museum inventory. So he sells things to museums. He'll sell things to arch archives. He has sold to major designers, like I said, and he works kind of for the movie sometimes with costume designers. He doesn't do this as like a low cost service. This is how he makes a lot of money and by a lot of money. Um, he has talked about, this was in an old video too. So I'm sure it's more now, um, selling denim usually for like around $10,000 for a pair of old jeans that are valuable. So this isn't small dealings we're talking about here. This is enough for the average working American family to live off of for months and he's selling that in just like one day so he talks about coming back from his trips with like a car full or a truck full of used um old denim and workwear and like i said he sells this for a lot of money and the article discusses how he has millions of dollars worth of american workwear that he has found or taken from some of these places stashed in his warehouse and he has a warehouse that he can afford where he puts all this stuff and it seems like he's sitting on a lot of it it's it's a little interesting how he kind of talks about how at one point he was living hand to mouth which i don't really know what that means 100 it's kind of vague i get the impression that this guy is it never really was hurting financially, but he wanted to turn something like this, like a niche field into his career and managed to do that quite successfully. And I have a feeling that you don't get to do that starting from absolutely nothing usually. And I'm getting the feeling that he has never had to rely on this 100% for his sole source of income. And here's the direct quote. From the article that he has said he says now my reaction is holy shit i've never seen that before i get that it's better to give rush because i can immediately think of a few people who would just get so much pleasure from it and that's talking about whenever he finds a piece of denim or workwear that he knows someone else is really going to want to buy so he talks about it how he feels that um it's better to give than receive kind of feeling when he finds this stuff. And I'm just wondering, is he really giving any of this away or is he selling it to people for very high prices? And some of you might say, oh, he's risking his life to obtain it. He puts in so much work on the road to obtain this stuff. But we're also not talking about, and what I need to bring up is that he's also invading people's privacy, sometimes trespassing taking advantage of unknowing seniors, people in poverty. He's sometimes buying things for a couple of bucks. I saw in his video, he had a pair of pants and he's like, I'll give you a couple of bucks for this. And these people think it's trash. So 
it's taking advantage of them. Even if he does tell them he's going to sell it for more, I don't know if he's going to be upfront completely about what he's earning. And these are people whose $10,000 or $5,000 or even $1,000 could make a world of difference and change their lives. Um, and another thing that's highly controversial is he's potentially disturbing grave sites, which are mines, like people have died in these old mines. We don't know who left those genes there. If you're going in and disturbing those areas, digging through all of that, you never know what you're going to find. And getting your clothing from there is, in my opinion, kind of controversial. It's it's something that seems not quite right to me that you're going in there and people have lost their lives, their health, their well-being, working and toiling away in those mines. And you're going in there and taking something they left in there as an afterthought for your own benefit. And it doesn't sit right with me. Here's another direct quote from the article. Trading denim was like a feeding frenzy back in the early 1990s. Every time a thrift store put a rack of jeans out, there would be 50 pairs of Big E Levi's, recalls Eaton. So I brought that up because this ties into everything I've been talking about with how thrifting in the 90s, early 2000s, it was so easy to find things that you wanted because there was plenty of it. That wasn't that long ago. And again, just adding to my point that thrift stores are garbage now, not because of fast fashion exclusively, but because people who are getting more and more knowledgeable and more and more greedy are buying up valuable things in large over-consuming quantities and taking advantage for their own benefit. And it's interesting that he talks about in his article a bit, how back then a lot of Japanese people who were from Japan, um, who were cashing in on the Americana craze in Japan, and this is a craze in other countries too, fashionable thing, but it's really big in Japan and it's still a thing. And um, I just find it very interesting. I have a friend who owned a vintage store in the 80s and she told me about how a couple of times men would come in who were from Japan and they would offer her large amounts of money just to look out for specific workwear types of pieces of clothing for them and to hold on to it for them. And then they would come and buy it so they could flip it. So this isn't a new thing. She said they were always polite, but it didn't feel right to be profiting off of sending so many integral parts of American history off to other countries as like a fad commodity. And I think that is especially important to talk about because that's what's happening. Um, instead of keeping it in our museums, which is where it belongs so that we can educate ourselves in future generations, these things are going to wealthy collectors, people who just kind of want to hold on to it for themselves. Who knows where it's really going and what's happening to it and what the condition is going to be when they're done. And we really need to be focusing on how we can preserve these things, not commodify them. And so she said she did not she sold to him a few times, but she did not hold on to things for him and stopped wanting to do that kind of business with him because it didn't feel right. And she said that she had someone from, gosh, I can't remember which country. It's a European country, I believe, 
that he wanted to buy a bunch of her old things as well. Like I think they were American records or like Victrola's something with the music industry too. And it's just like, it's, it's kind of hard sending those things out of the country in large quantities to people. It's, it's like keeping the relics of Egypt in Egypt where they belong, but American tourists or other people from other countries, explorers went and, and stole from these tombs. It's kind of similar to me. I feel like these old houses, um, mines, those are like, sometimes the mines are tombs. It's kind of like you're taking things, artifacts from these places and selling them off to the highest bidder. It just doesn't sit right with me. It, it's so greedy how, how it's ruined like our thrifting experiences and our preservation of history and how we look at history too. So I noticed that he mentioned proudly that he was willing to sell things with holes in it when most other dealers would throw it away. I think that, you know, good for him for that, that he's not just throwing things away with holes. Um, it's, it's just interesting in this article how it seems like he wants to justify what he's doing so badly. Um, but I don't think he realizes how he's contributing to the problem, just like everybody else. I, I really don't think he understands because he's so confident about it. And the article talks about him not getting a high or a buzz anymore from just regular thrifting old jeans, like anything after 1900. Um, and he started feeling a little bit, I'm going to paraphrase here, like desensitized and he needed to just get older, more museum quality pieces because that buzz for him was wearing away. He describes the feeling of finding valuable workwear as a high or a buzz that he's getting. And I find that troubling. And it makes me wonder how many vintage resellers um, operate that way too. How many people are doing this, feeling like they need to acquire more and more, older and older, rarer and rarer because of this buzz that they're chasing? And I know that there's a lot of people who are coming from a wealthier background. They might have a trust fund or something already in place, and they are doing this as a hobby slash side hustle slash um, unofficial career kind of thing. And again, I'm taking most of my issue with people who are doing this who already come from privileged backgrounds, who have money put away, but they're doing this as an act of wanting to seem like they are hard workers because that's trendy now. Um, it's trendy to not talk about your wealth and to not talk about your trust funds. I have a friend who was embarrassed to admit that that's where she was getting her money from, but it was pretty clear to me that, you know, on a coffee shop worker's budget, you're not going to be able to afford a new car and rent for you and your boyfriend at a pretty nice apartment. That kind of thing is everywhere. And I think that the vintage and antique community is suffering because there's so many people who have the means to live comfortably and they're trying to, t they're bored and they're trying to turn, um, reselling, antiquing these unique items into their livelihood just for the sake of conquering or feeling successful or self-made because it is. That's why um, workwear in the working poor's fashion has become so gentrified because it's popular now to seem self-made. It's popular and trendy to seem like you have done it all yourself and you want 
there's so much hate for America, but at the same time, there's so much appreciation for it underneath the surface, I feel like, because everybody wants to seem gritty and rugged in their own way. And they want to seem like they embody those American ideals and wear the the work wear inspired clothing and really seem like they're struggling more than they are so they don't seem like soft, privileged, rich kids. And I really think that they're taking that energy, which could be better used elsewhere, and putting it all into maintaining this fake appearance. And it's making everybody else who enjoy the, enjoys those things because that's what they can afford suffer. And I think I just want everybody to think about that. Because for me, that, that was a really big revelation. And they're taking us all down with that. <laughs> because they just don't want to admit that they're privileged and wealthy. And that's okay. I just want you to own it. And just say like, hey, I don't need to work for any of this. I'm just doing it because I love it. It might change things. It might change the game. But instead, they have to put up this front. They're struggling so much. And I know you're not. It's weird. <laughs> So, and that kind of goes into what I want to talk about next is the obsession with status, the obsession with owning rare things. We need to talk about how it's ruining the vintage community. Being obsessed with having something nobody else has is, it's, it's strange. And I wonder why are people so obsessed with having something that no one else has? Is it because you want to seem special? You're, you want to seem individual, you want to seem like there's nobody like you and you want everybody to know it, and you want everybody to know that you're kind of like at this unattainable, untouchable level of status. Um, it's, it's very strange to be obsessed with having the rarest, most interesting things. Um, it doesn't give you a personality, they're just things that you own and where and it's funny how back i would say maybe in the 50s or 40s people were more focused on being the every woman or every man and saying i'm just like everybody else but nowadays everybody wants to say that they're not like anybody else and they want to own very exclusive things to prove that but at the same time they still kind of secretly want to be like everybody else because they're following trends, but they just want the items within the trends to still be unique and personalized enough to show that they're wealthy enough to afford these like trendy items, but they are also wealthy enough to make sure that their specific item isn't like anybody else's. It's confusing. And I've noticed some influencers who wear vintage on Instagram doing this and just showing off their very, very rare items, kind of like, like a prize. And they get so much attention and likes and comments and adoration from just the fact that they were able to afford something uh, rare or unique. And I think that's really weird. Why are we celebrating and worshiping these people who are just able to spend money to buy something that we can't. I don't really understand that. I think there's more to be celebrated in trying to create a more everyday look from the sake of relatability 
And I think that that would build community more rather than this idea of exclusivity. And I'd love to see more of us just wearing and owning and appreciating those everyday outfits and not giving people who are obsessed with status and rarity and money and just kind of indirectly showing how much money they have, which is what it is. It's just flaunting. I just don't want those people to be getting as much as attention as they are. It's not worth it. And you know, who are they really? They're just like all of us underneath the exterior garments. And that's why I love wearing handmade stuff more. And I don't really care for rarity. Um, it's more about style and the way something is made or constructed or or the way it flatters your figure. That should be more important when it comes to appreciating outfits and clothing and sartorial matters. So next, getting back to the article, it discusses how he studies period magazines and advertisements for possible tip-offs. Let's talk about tip-offs. Tip-offs to him are green lights or uh, light bulb moments where he goes to usually an impoverished, I'm guessing, area where very few people live and they're living in these ancestral homes. And he specializes in going to the Southwest where he says the denim is better preserved due to the arid desert weather. He's more likely to find it in good condition. He studies where the old mining camps might be and he plans to go there for the purpose of finding his denim or workwear. So he's doing a lot of studying up to decide where he's going to snoop around or ask people to go into their houses. Um, in the video accompanying the article, he talks about how he goes to communities and it shows some of these people. They look dirt poor and none the wiser about the value of these things. I'm looking at him talking to some of these men and it looks like they haven't bought new clothes in years. They uh, look like they might not even be able to afford health insurance. The homes that they are taking them to to look through are barely held together. There's trash and junk everywhere. It's like poverty alley. And he's going there looking kind of clean cut and wealthy, in my opinion. And he's basically getting shepherded inside of these places by these men, usually, who are just like giving them giving him these things or selling them to him for very cheap. He's ripping through their attics and poses with people proudly, like the people that he's taking these things from. Um, I just want to know how much is he running them through the ringer when he finds these items cooped up in the beams of their family homes? Like, what is he telling them? I heard in one of his videos that he said, oh, I'll give you a couple bucks for this. And he throws out a pair of jeans and he says things like, oh, I might not be able to even use this or whatever. And he's still taking piles of things saying he might not be able to use it. So I'm just wondering, like, are you downplaying that to save money? That just doesn't seem right to me. He said directly, you need a sense of what very poor people would once have done with their clothes when they were finished with them and they didn't often throw them away. So he's basically saying you need to think like a poor person. And that is offensive. He's saying that you need to have an understanding or to think about what very poor people were doing with their clothing. And he wants these things. So he is looking up and educating himself about where he can find them. 
and he's saying they didn't often throw them away. He admits to finding them stuffed into scarecrows, scarecrows, boxing bags, sofa cushions, rafters of homes, mannequins, um, banisters. So he is basically ripping through these people's homes looking for these things. He, here's a, a quote from the article. He has sold a pair of chinos from the Spanish-American War era to a Japanese collector for $12,000. Other pieces are regularly valued at over $10,000. So he's making bank for these scraps that he is finding. Uh, some people are likely giving it away. I just wonder if they know how much he's really profiting and if he's compensating them fairly. He talks about an $18,000 jacket he was able to buy for himself that was special because of the patch placement and how it advertises proudly that it was made with white labor. And that's in response to the Chinese exclusion um, kind of racist mentality back then of how they didn't want Chinese labor making their clothes. Um, it was highly discriminated against. They were highly discriminated against. And Levi's, they don't talk about this much, of course, but they, back in the day, were a company that proudly used only white labor. They used that on their labels. And this is a piece that belongs in a museum. I mean, it's a representation of a very difficult part of history that I think it's kind of disrespectful for men to be buying these things and flaunting them as a part of their collection. It, it seems a little um, inconsiderate to me. And if it's so valuable, which I think it is for history's sake, it, it shouldn't be just being tossed and traded around and for that kind of money. And he must be making pretty good money if he's able to afford an $18,000 jacket, which he said he'd be willing to spend, or sorry, he'd be willing to sell to someone if they were willing to offer him more than he paid for it. So there's a price on everything. And I don't know if profiting off of other people's pain that directly is something that we should be glorifying. So here's the, the part that I found really offensive and awful. This is a direct quote from the article that does not stop him from sweet talking his way through strangers front doors to get into the crevices of their homes in order for the hunt to go on. He has told people he has a poltergeist detection machine and wants to check their home only to give them the all clear and turn the conversation towards the neat jacket on the banister. Wow. It's incredibly deceitful to lie to get into people's homes just so you can look around in their personal private areas and who knows exactly what he's going to be offering them for these items that he finds he here's a direct quote again he told one man he was a great roofer and promised to fix his roof if only he would let him look around utterly inexperienced in roofing eaton gamely did it anyway he reconnected with the fortunately forgetful homeowner many years later to find buckets strewn throughout the house because years ago some asshole messed up my roof. So here's what he did. He lied to a man to get into his house to look through his roof area and his probably attic. He said he was a professional who could fix his roof as a way of gaining access. He messed up this guy's roof, which is a safety hazard, and he left it like that left with the denim, I'm guessing, or whatever he found there, and never told him the truth. 
in until years later, potentially, if you did it all. Um, it's it's not cute or clever. They're talking about it like it's a glorious, smart thing that he did. It's someone's roof and it's somebody's safety. That's completely reckless and selfish. And you're lying to people. You're taking advantage of of them. Um, finding treasures among the relics of their struggle speaks to how this guy must have grown up. I mean, I don't know him or how he grew up, but I don't know many people who grew up struggling or poor, feeling the need to get a thrill from this sort of thing, or having the means and time to be able to go road tripping like this, to dig through people's personal lives and find things to sell. Um, I don't know many people who are cocky or arrogant enough to lie to the poor for their own personal gain. I think that shows a lot of entitlement. It's disturbing. Needing to get your fix among the suffering of the poor as a fun treasure hunt for unimaginable imaginable profits disgusts me. It really does. Um, in the video clip I'm going to show you, his wife is describing how he chased down a homeless man wearing a pair of jeans that he thought were very valuable. He waves $50 at this man and drops his pants in public to get the money. So the, how do you justify waving your money at a homeless man, having him drop his pants just to get $50 that he's desperately going to clamor for because you think it's possible that you could be making a lot of money off of that? And he said it's just to satisfy his curiosity and that it's worth spending $50 and throwing $50 at a man to expose himself in the streets just to satisfy your curiosity. I know this is an old video. It didn't age well. It's disgusting to me. Some people might say he's saving things from getting thrown away, and he has. Um, I get that, and I think it's good to save valuable old things from getting thrown away when we can, but is it really worth his methods of how he obtains things? Sometimes I'd rather see things get thrown away than people to be taken advantage of and exploited like this. And maybe that's an unpopular opinion, but should it be? Is it really worth him getting his fix and his thrills to see these people getting taken advantage of like this? And his wife said that it happens all the time where he gets jeans off of homeless men. And he thinks he can just wave a $50 bill at whoever he wants just to get his way. And that is extreme entitlement. That is disrespectful. I, I'm not even aware if he's offering an alternative pair of pants for this guy who clearly just doesn't care and wants the money. Whoever, whatever he's spending it on, I don't know. But I don't think that anybody should be able to just wave money at someone what does it say about the society we're living in? It says that overall, this extends outside of the vintage community. We are a people who are concerned too much with society and wealth as a means of getting away with whatever you want. And why are we adoring and looking upon these people as someone to aspire to be? And I admit there's a morbid fascination with it. I have it too. That's why I'm talking about it. But I don't try to emulate it. And I don't think any of us should be trying to emulate it because it's not realistic. And I think it takes advantage of most, most of us and creates a worse quality or standard of living for us in general as regular people. So 
I encourage everyone, if you'd like to watch those videos and read this article for yourself, I'm going to be adding links to repeat again to um, encourage everyone to check it out. Don't just take my word that all of this stuff was said. You can see it and hear for yourself exactly what this man's attitude is and the people who support him on the dem denim hunters who clearly don't think there's anything wrong with this. And again, I'm just here to talk about the reality of what is happening. And I don't know many people who are spending $10,000 on denim jeans, but you know, if, if you do maybe reconsider what's going on and how these people are obtaining it, is it really worth it? Or maybe you should be putting your money into, you know, purchasing jeans or workwear from people who are making it ethically new rather than supporting this really shady business. <laughs> so just some thoughts to, to dwell on and think about that I'd like everybody to sit with. And, you know, if you haven't already subscribed and liked this video or episode, depending on which platform you're on, I encourage you to do so because it helps me know that you would like to keep watching this content and you value it and want to hear more. I'd love to hear your feedback. And if you have any other things you'd like to hear me talk about, I'm always open to hearing that. So thank you so much for tuning in and giving me some of your time today. I hope you're all having a wonderful summer and really getting out there and enjoying it. And just, again, taking advantage of the fact that you only get one July a year. Okay. Have a wonderful rest of your day, everyone. And happy 4th. Probably going to be coming out before that, but it's almost the 4th of July over here. Bye-bye.